Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrop, Chief Executive of the City Club and also a proud member. Today's April 24th. It's the sixth week of virtual forums here at the City Club. And once again, we're presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. This forum today was scheduled actually months ago, and it's one that we decided to proceed with, even though all of our virtual forums have largely been anchored in some fashion in this coronavirus pandemic. The story we're going to discuss today, it's a story of survival, of resilience, and of withstanding adversity, and we think it has a particular relevance today. Before we introduce our speaker, I'd like to just take a quick moment to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Our forum today is the Robert D. Grease Forum on Inspiration, and we thank the Grease family for their support of City Club programs. Now our speaker today, Long Ung, she is a best-selling author, human rights activist, and co-writer of the 2017 Netflix original movie directed by Angelina Jolie based on her memoir, First They Killed My Father. It's now streaming on Netflix in 190 countries. The book and the movie detail Wong's personal childhood experience living in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge regime and the genocide that took place then and took the lives of 2 million people, including her parents, two sisters, and 20 other relatives. Wong Ung emigrated to the United States in 1980, and today she and her husband live in Cleveland, where they are co-owners of three successful restaurants and two microbreweries in the city. And as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, you can tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Wong Ung, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. Um, first off, how are you handling this uh, pandemic crisis? I have had many moments. Um, I went through denial. I went through anger. I went through sadness. And um, I went through all the stages of grief. And uh, I think I am now in a place where I'm, uh, I'm accepting the situation and adapting to our new normal a little bit better than, um, say, six weeks ago when we at Market Garden Brewery and Barcento and Beer Market had to shutter our restaurants and let go of all of our, most of our employees. Many of them were friends and have been with us for decades. So it has been trying, it has been difficult, but um, I am um, also very blessed to be here and to be in Ohio and very, very grateful, a great shout out to Governor DeWine and Dr. Acton for their fast and quick um, knowledgeable work and responses. And uh, so my family and I are practicing social distancing, isolating ourselves, um, and we are doing well and staying healthy. This um, this moment with the, the this has a specific kind of adversity. Um, and when uh, you're the only one who can really compare it to your own experience uh, in Cambodia in the 70s under the Khmer Rouge regime and the particular kind of adversity that you faced then. And I know that this moment has caused you to reflect on that a little bit. And I'd just like to ask you just in general, kind of how you are reflecting on that. Yeah, I think for a while, the press and the media were describing the coronavirus and COVID-19 as a war situation, that it was a war against the virus and doctors and nurses were fighting and creating war triage in the hospitals. And um, and I, 
I, I, I understand that people needed this to be, to have gravitas, but the health crisis to me, um, we still have power to take care of ourselves, to be with our families and loved ones, um, and to make sure that we as a community are there for each other. In my war during the Khmer Rouge, um, when I was, the soldiers came to my city when I was five, and the war for me didn't end until I was nine, and the whole of my society, my world collapsed. There was no economy, and I know a lot of us are feeling that pain now. In Cambodia, we weren't allowed to practice faith. We had no power to say, to vote, to vote is still very important. No power to um, alter our lives. And so even this, though this feel, feels scary, um, and, and our enemies and invisible enemies, unlike the soldiers, when I saw them, I could avoid them and I could dodge like right or dodge left. And you know who your enemies were. With this, it's a bit more difficult, but we still have power. We still have abilities. We can still um, work to stay home, practice social distancing, listen to our officials and our leaders so that we not only take care of ourselves and stay healthy, but we can take care of each other. Um, and in my war, I didn't have that power. You have said that um, it, in not having power, I mean, that that's almost as if kind of not having, losing your identity in some fashion. And I know, I think that was part of the Khmer Rouge's specific agenda was to erase the identities of Cambodians. Yeah. It was not having power erase you as a human being, took away your dignity, your integrity, your grace, your light, your beauty. And, and I had to do that to save a life at age five, six, seven, eight. I had to become dumb, deaf, mute, blind, invisible, just so I wouldn't be a target, um, just so the soldiers couldn't see me, just so I could take that next breath. I had to erase my humanity. And that's what not having power means. And I am so amazed and I am so um, astounded and incredulous by seeing how the people in our community right now, in Ohio, in America, are actually rising to the challenge of being the best of man's humanity to man to each other. Mm -hmm. I've seen the very worst of acts of man's inhumanity to man, and I see how that could hurt and cause more horrors. And, and it really has, has been so heartening for me to see all these actions of man's best humanity to man in, in, in the, the response of our first responders and our healthcare providers and our essential workers and you and the governors and all of us rising to the highest level of this challenge to keep us together. And that is power. Next power also is that we need to vote. We need to keep this power and we need to express this power and we need to own this power and not forget that we actually have it. If you're just joining us, you're with the City Club Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop. We're speaking with Wang Ung, the author of First They Killed My Father, which was turned into a Netflix film not too long ago, um, which was directed and produced by Angelina Jolie and co-written by Wang herself. The um, And we're talking about specifically about sort of the reflections between and the and similarities, differences uh, between her own experience and the experience of what we're all going through today. Social distancing, Luang, you have said the other day when we were speaking that um, it was as if you were engaged in social distancing for five years during that time. Yes. Under the Khmer Rouge communist regime, 
the government, otherwise known as the ANCA, which really literally translated into English as the organization, wanted complete loyalty to the government, to the Khmer Rouge. They and and they wanted um they wanted our complete royalty, loyalty, our complete faith, and to have loyalty and love outside of that was deemed dangerous. And and um, so the Khmer Rouge, so under the Khmer Rouge, it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe to show love. It wasn't safe to hold another person. It wasn't safe to hug your loved ones. You had to keep yourself apart. You had to keep yourself still. You had to keep yourself unemotional just so you could live. And 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 so I, I almost felt like for all those for those four years, I had to practice social distancing. I couldn't just hold my sister's hands and grab her hands whenever I wanted to. I couldn't just be with my mother. I couldn't just show my love. And we are all feeling that now. We're all, I think, as a society, as a nation, feeling that. Um, and yet, and yet, you know, it. we, we know it's still there. Um, and... And it was really, really difficult. It was really, it did something to your psyche. It did something to my heart. Um, but yet it also awakened in me in a, an awareness and a consciousness and a gratitude of what touching another person and, and showing love means. And when, I'm telling you, when I can next hold my little two-year-old niece, I am going to squeeze her so tight and I'm going to really be in that moment and not just so, not to just pick her up and put her back down on the ground just because I want her to go away. I am really going to save her being able to hold her again. There are a number of moments both in the book and that are also des described in the movie um, where that human touch is so important. And it does in talking to people in the community, I myself feel it as, as somebody who who loves to be around other people and be close to other people. Um, but in the movie, there are these moments, whether it is the holding the, the child long in the movie, um, holding holding her sister's hand or holding the hand of a stranger, uh, a girl, and then the sitting on her father's lap. And I'm using the third person now because it's not exactly you in the movie, but um, and you, but you talk about it too in in the book, and then there are there is a moment in the refugee camp in the movie in the refugee camp when your brothers arrive, and there's this shot of the of of all of you with your arms around one another. Yes, um, there is a sense of uh, a sort of sense of relief of finally being able to engage in that human physical contact again. It it really was and. And that was one of the experience I remember as well. In um, again, it's the, the film. You know, there was the little girl and and the actors who played our stories were playing stories and and were acting in scenes that happened to us in real life. And um, two of my, I have a couple of very very strong memories that I hold in my heart and that stays with me for for um, the rest of my life. And and one is. I'm so grateful that even when I didn't know what the, the, the healing ability of human touch, I had the instinct of heart to realize how important it was. Um, and I remember very clear when the soldiers came for my father with the excuses that they needed him to go with them to remove an ox cart stuck in the mud. And, 
And I could see my father for the very first time standing up straight and with his shoulders high. And then he went into the hut and talked to my mother. Um, and, and then she started crying. And when he came back out, one by one, he picked up my brothers and sister in his arms and he just held them. And, and when it was my turn, I had the instinct of heart to remember that moment. I had the instinct of heart to wrap my arms around his shoulders, to rest my face at the nape of his neck, to remember how his arms felt tightly around my waist and to see and, and feel my feet dangling in the air and just be in that moment of my father's hold and hug. Um, and I knew somewhere in my heart that that was, would be the last time I saw him and I would see him. Um, and um, the soldiers had been coming to our villages, uh, to our village month, day in and, and weeks go by and then parents and people would disappear. And, and I'm so grateful that I had the instinct of heart to be in that moment with my father. I hope that I was there with him to give him love and for him to feel that love to walk away with, but it was also the love that I wanted to hold with me. Um, and, and so, and after that, you have to shut yourself down again. You have to survive. Um, and at the end of the war, just the ability to be uninhibited and to actually hold my brothers and sisters in a re, uh, when we were reunited and not have to hide and not have to hold back. That is, that is running into a hug. That wasn't just hugging each other. That was us running into a hug. That phrase that you uh, that you use there, instinct of heart. I don't know that I've actually ever heard that before. Yeah. It felt like that. I, I don't know. I, I was seven when soldiers came for my father. I don't know how I would have. I couldn't make sense of what happened. I knew soldiers were coming into the villages and I knew loved ones and fathers and mothers and people were disappearing, but I couldn't make sense of what that actually meant because I didn't want to believe it. And, and to believe it would make it true. And yet my heart knew, my heart knew what was going on and my heart had an instinct. And so I followed the instinct of my heart to hold my father for the very last time. To be clear, when you say that your neighbors and your father disappeared, they were killed. Yes. In Cambodia today, in the four years, uh, close to four years under the Khmer Rouge, it's left Cambodia, a country the size of the state of Oklahoma, today littered with over 20,000 mass graves. And uh, many of us don't know what happened to our loved ones. They, we weren't there with them. They died by themselves. And um, uh, over a million skulls have been accounted in these mass graves. And they are somebody's loved ones, father, mothers, daughters, brothers. And um, today, I do not know what happened to my father, but I am so grateful that my last memory and image of him was of me being held by him. Is there, um, it, I can't imagine what that memory must feel like to you. And I know that the way memory works, though, is that some memories are, and some people are sort of always with you. Is there ever a moment when you're not thinking about that? You know, I uh, no, I, I don't think so. It's I I have so few memories of my father, and um, because he was taken from me when I was very young, and I have very many sad memories of my father 
during the war of seeing him struggle and seeing all of us in pain and of realizing um, that we couldn't protect each other and seeing the expression on his, on his face when he couldn't protect us. Um, and so I am, you know, I, I think life is really a matter of choice and I have chosen to hold certain dear memories close to me always so that I will never forget them. I may never forget them. And whenever I'm in a space that is dark and sad and I needed to honor um, my father, I will always, I will be able to, able to bring this memory back and feel instant love from my father. And that is what keeps me going. We're talking with Wang Ung. She's the author of First They Killed My Father, which was made into a movie recently by Netflix, directed and produced by Angelina Jolie. Um, and uh, we're talking about overcoming adversity, about facing adversity, about resilience in the face of adversity. You can join us with your questions at 330-541-5794. Just text your questions to 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, please tweet them at the City Club and we will work them into the second half of the program. This is the City Club Forum. I'm Dan Maltrip. Luong, um, that notion of resilience, you've thought a lot about that and, uh, and about whether it is something you were born with or something you discover within. Yes. It, it's been, I mean, for me, having, you know, I arrived up to America when I was very young and, and when people heard and, and found out about my story and, and what happened to my family and I in Cambodia, the word they often used was that I was a resilient child, a resilient person, a resilient adult. I've been able to come to America, learn English, went to college, um, found love, found, have, you know, created a loving family of in, in different parts of the world, in Shaker Heights, in Bay Village, in Cleveland. Um, and I and I was, it always bothered me that when people use that word to describe me, it almost with a sense of, as if that was a part of my personality trait, as if that was something intrinsic that I was born with. And I never felt that way. I always felt that, that I, resilient is something that you learn. It's something that you cultivate. It's something that you actually can um, develop. Um, and I was really, really happy to learn when I was doing some research on it to read um, on the website of the American Psychology Association that uh, this is something that people who have studied resilience for decades and spent years researching it, this is something they also believe, that resilience is something that we can actually develop. And it involves us developing our communication skills, um, focusing on meanings in our life, and um, developing our friendships and prioritizing our friend our friendships and also knowing um what to let go when to let go and what is important um and 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 it's also something that you work on daily that you commit to that you strategize and as a result of that um I think I've been able to be very resilient because I have so many tools to be resilient um to respond and to um to respond to adversities when it does happen to me. Where, how did you learn it? At first, I think when I was young, I learned it by remembering that it wasn't just about me, that, that survival um, wasn't just about me. And I had to remember that I needed to, for me, meaning going on with life, moving forward, wasn't something I needed to do for myself. I knew right away that my life wasn't just mine, it also, 
is my family's life. I am living a life that my father never got to live. I am living a life that my sister, for your sister, never got to live. I am eating and dating and traveling and dancing and doing all the things my siblings, my parents, my 20 other relatives who died in the war didn't get to do it. So I realized right away that I am not alone in this. Um, and um, so that was, one of the skills I learned. And over the years, I have just acquired new skills, um, being empathetic, learning that um, being kind matters. And it's, it's just really going through and realizing that to be a decent human being and to build a community and, and a society and, a, and, and friends and families where you are kind and supportive of each other is what will help you go through many difficult things in life. The resilience that you found through those experiences and then you compare your experiences with what you're going through today, um, how does, I mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine there's really much of a comparison. You're sitting in your home and in a ring suburb in Cleveland, in, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and, um, and you know, you've, you've got internet, you've got food. You've got, you know, like it seems um, hardly co comparable at all. And yet here we are sort of talking about, you know, here we are. And there is a, a degree to which all of us are kind of having to dig deep to get through this. Yes. Some deeper than others, clearly. It, it, it is. I, I think you know, we do have to keep perspectives and focus. Um, we do have to take care of ourselves. And for me, I, I know being able to being able to stay calm and to have a, a bit of a positive outlook. I'm, I'm not sure I'm an optimist, but <laughs> but I do try and work very hard to um, stay positive and um, and yet realizing that we have people in our world right now who are facing food insecurities and job insecurities and health insecurities and financial insecurities and um, and and realizing that that we do not live in a vacuum. And, and that's why it is very important for us to reach out to other people, to be there for each other, whether it is our siblings or our in-laws or our friends or our communities, that it is very important that we realize that we are in this together. However, before we could get out there to be together, we also have to be able to be together be be within ourselves and, and just to find a little bit of stillness and calmness in our own heart and in our own space and our own body before we I mean for me that's what I find helpful. I when I'm frazzled, I am not much good out there. When I am anxious, I am not really being able to really be there for my friends. So I do have certain thoughts and tricks that I I do to stay to, to be calm. Um, and one when I'm frazzled and nervous, I, I adhere to my principle of roar. You know, sometimes it's a loud roar, like, a, you know, sometimes it's a softer roar, but it really is an acronym for me. This is just something, this is something that helps me. Um, and when something happens to me, I first, my first thing is I respond uh, or I react to the situations very quickly. I don't wait to find out what other people are saying, I do the research, I do the work, I, I react and respond quickly. And then I take a moment to organize my thoughts, to organize my life, to organize Tupperware, to organize the food pantry so that I know where things are. Because when there's chaos, in times of chaos, I need a little bit of order that I can order that I control. And, and then um, after that, I respond um, 
and um, and then I, I um, adjust to this new situation, my two, my new normal, and then I rest. Mm-hmm. And when I have that bit of calmness, that is when I know I'm okay to go out um, and I can go and stand in the food lines at Heinen because I'm not frazzled. So I will stand in my space and I will be kind in my space. Um, and then I will follow the rules, but I do not run out there when I am frazzled. So you do need to also find that stillness and calmness in yourself before you go out and be effective and be there for others. When you were a child uh, before you left Cambodia and you needed to find the few things you could control, what were those things? I could always control my breath. And so for me, and and I think it's because my father was a Buddhist monk before he, um, at age, you know, as a young man, um, literally saw my mother bathing in a river and stopped being a monk and got married. (laughs) You know, so he he fell in love or in lust, um, you know, depending on which version of the story you hear from my siblings. Um, And so my father was big into meditation. I I can still remember my father always taking deep breaths. Um, And so when things get a little chaos, you just focus on that, just that one breath. And then you focus on the next and the next, and the next, until you get to a point where you're not even realizing that you are now breathing deeply. And it's important. So just for me, that was the one thing I could control. That was the one thing I could calm myself. And the other thing I controlled it, I could control is my mind. I could keep the love, the light, the laughter in my mind, in my visions of my parents, in the in daydreaming and and dreaming of better times in the future or in the past um, where I could understand that we are suffering, that this is difficult. Um, I was talking with somebody who was upset that they um, couldn't be there for their daughter's commencement or high school graduations. And I said to them, but then there is going to be a wedding. There's going to be a next meal. There's going to be Thanksgiving. It may not be the same Thanksgiving we're used to having, but there will be another sunshine. There will be all of that. So let's focus on that. Keep perspective on that. Um, And the soldiers could um, try to control my outer environments, but they could never control my heart or my mind. You have spoken in the past about guilt as a motivator for you, for the choices that you've made in life and your, um, and how you have chosen to live your life and devote your life to telling the story, your story, um, and also to fighting for the removal of landmines in Cambodia and elsewhere. Um, guilt's a hard thing to carry. Guilt was a really hard thing to carry. And I felt tremendous guilt leaving behind my sister, and two brothers in Cambodia um, behind to um, eventually make our way to America with my oldest brother and his wife. I felt tremendous guilt for being alive, for surviving when my four-year-old sister didn't make it and my 14-year-old sister didn't make it. I felt guilt and, and it just, it went through it. It, it just it impacted everything I did. And I felt that guilt when I didn't get an A and how dare I 
not take full advantage of my opportunities, the opportunities around me to get this great, wonderful education when my sister didn't make it and couldn't do it. And, um, and it just colored everything in my life. And, and then it weighed on me. It settled in my shoulders, it settled in my stomach, it settled in my throat. It pervaded itself in my dreams and my nightmares. And so it just colored how I see the world. And, and as a result of that, I began to judge the worlds um, for the haves and the have nots, for who was suffering, who wasn't. And I stopped seeing all of this as a part of our, our the fabric of human history and that, um, um, and that I, I had to let it go. I had to let it go because I was physically making myself sick. Um, and I had to choose to let go because unfortunately you can say you want to let go of guilt and you can say you have to let it go, but it doesn't really want to let go of you, especially when you've been carrying it for decades. Um, I had to slowly let it go, choose to let it go. And the way I did that was by getting involved in activism, by making sure that, that this isn't about me, that the guilt and the writing and the work, in some way it allowed me to go in deep, to do therapy, to talk to people. But at some point I had to realize that um, that was really, that was decadent. And I had to go out. I had to go outward. Um, and um, and activism and getting involved and connecting people and reaching out has been the best tool for me to let go of my guilt. There's something that comes, I think, with age as well, when you can recognize that the the things that motivate you as a younger person are not always the things that ultimately matter the most or would even matter to the people you might have thought you were honoring in your actions. Isn't that amazing? It was true. When I was young, I was driven to do so much, be everywhere, eat everything. And now I, I just, I really am motivated to be decent. I thought when I was young, I wanted, it is enough. It's enough. I just, I'm not, not even, I'm not trying to be great. I'm not, I just want to be a decent human being. I want to be caring. Um, I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I just want to be decent. And that is enough for me. We're speaking with Long Ung. This is the City Club Friday Forum presented to you from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. I'm Dan Malthrop. If you have questions for Luang Ung, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Please text your questions there. And you can also tweet them at the City Club and we will work them into the program. We received uh, this question, what was it like to become separated from your siblings knowing that you might not ever see them again in your life? It was difficult to say the very least. Um, and, and for me, this is probably why I'm a writer. Um, each time I had to say goodbye to people, I've had to hold them in my heart and hold them in my head and replay the last image of my sister running and, and walking with me and, and her smile and her love. Because when I was separate from my siblings also, it was this was a time before internet, before televisions, before iPhone, before FaceTiming and Zooming. And so I didn't have images of her. I didn't have photographs. I didn't have, I wasn't able to see them. Um, 
And so all I had was what I held in my head that I could replay over and over and over again. And I came to realize the important, um, the, the, the power of memory, the power of having a very rich internal life, the power of having a very rich internal dialogue um, with your loved ones um, and continuing to talk to, for me, I, I speak to my mother still and my father. And uh, now I don't have to speak to my sister in my mind because I could just FaceTime her. Um, but there are times when I will still speak to my sister and um, in my mind. Um, and so, it's it's um it was really really difficult but sisters are forever and as long as I remember them and I love them, they will never they will never be gone completely. This question as well, um, could you talk about uh, working with Angelina Jolie and how that mm -hmm. partnership came to be? Um, Angie and I, I'm sorry, Angelina, Angie, Angie, Angie. no, no, Angie. that's fine. I call her Angie too. Yeah, yeah oh, good. Um, Angie and I met goodness, close to 20 years ago, she was in Cambodia making the film Tomb Raiders. And um, she, uh, in, in my book, and just, I believe it was two, year 2000, and my book had just, First They Killed My Father had just came out. And, um, and it was being sold by little kids in at the temple areas, the markets and the shops, everywhere they went. And so, um, Angie bought a copy from such child and uh, um, did not pay me royalty it's and so copy, pirated copies <laughs> you know and then she called me up um, and um, and then we just really got along really well um, and we've been friends close to 20 years and she is a, a wonderful woman she is um, we're, we're, we're close friends and I respect her and admire her and her integrity and her track records for wanting to make a difference in our world and doing it um, and her empathy and love for our world and um, and then her hard work at um, in, in her activism and her humanitarian work. So, so yes, I have uh, only wonderful things to say about her. How did that happen though, uh, going from her reading the book 20 years ago to uh, to a film being made of the book with you? Um, <laughs> well, we do that. It's it, very organically, actually, because we kept in touch um, since 2000 and we've been friends since. And so we would see each other at each other's houses or in the different cities we're in. Um, and we have talked about making a film together and whether um, through the years, whether or not she was going to come in as a producer or as a friend. Um, and But it was always just friends talk about things, <laughs> you know, and my girlfriends in Cleveland are always talking about how one day they will cook with me, which will probably not happen because I don't cook, but we talk about these things as friends. Um, and, um, and, and so, and I, when, when her son, she adopted a, a son from Cambodia Maddox and, um, and we all wanted to be in Cambodia to spend time together. And, um, when Maddox came of age, when he was a teenager, he finally said to her that, yes, he wanted to do and work on this project together. Because Angie knew she wanted to work on it with with Mad and she wanted him to be ready. She and I knew we could go and spend time together in Cambodia and be ready, but she wanted him involved and she wanted to work with Cambodian and, and work with many Cambodians. And when Mad was ready, we came together and um, she asked me if I um, wanted to write the screenplay with her and I said, yes. 
having no idea how to write a screenplay. <laughs> and then I took out writing screenplay for dummies um, and uh, read. And um, fortunately for me, she's a wonderful writer and uh, we worked together and, um, and, and it happened amazingly enough. It was not anything I thought was going to happen. It wasn't anything I dreamt of, of, of happening, but, but I'm very grateful. And I love, I love the film that we made together. We're talking with Wang Ung. She's the author of First They Killed My Father, and we're just now discussing the uh, the how that how that book, how that memoir became the Netflix film by the same name. And how was another question from the audience? Um, how was that film received in Cambodia? The film was received amazingly, and I am so grateful for that. I was so nervous premiering the film in Cambodia and we, it's, um, we, pre, we, we had our world premiere in Angkor Wat, Siem Reap, Cambodia, the famed temples that is the largest religious complex in the world. And we premiered it on a big screen in, in, the, in the temple area and invited 2000 people, the dignitaries and the king and the queen mother showed up and the diplomats and also the villagers and um, and I was so scared. I was so scared. And, um, and, and, and Cambodians loved the film. They stayed through the whole time and the next, um, and then they, uh, the responses um, were overwhelmingly positive. Um, and then the, we premiered it at the next place in Phnom Penh and expected a couple of thousand people. And I believe over 7,000 people showed up. And then we went to the next place and we were thinking maybe, you know, we were showing it again in, in the, a dusty soccer field in the middle of nowhere in Cambodia in Batambang. And we thought maybe a few thousand people would show up. And I believe the provincial governor said anywhere between 15 to 20,000 people showed up to watch this film um, and um, on, the, on, on the screen in, in Cambodia. So I am so grateful. And I think it's, it's been received so well because we worked with so many Cambodians on the set and to Cambodian artists and makeup des, um, designers and costume designers and Cambodian actors. And it was in the Khmer language because An Angelina and I and um, the people who were all involved in the film, including Netflix, was very conscious of wanting to make this a Cambodian experience. Um, and so we worked with over 20,000 extras in Cambodia and all of whom were either children or grandchildren of survivors of the Khmer Rouge or survivors of the Khmer Rouge themselves. So we, there was a collective understanding of what we were doing and a collective wish to honor the love and life and loss of what we all went through. And as a result of that, um, I think I think all that came out on the screen. It is one of the stories in our world's recent history that is undertold. The stories of other wars are much better known in, in many ways. And I would imagine for Cambodians to see their story told so well and on a world stage was deeply gratifying. I hope so. I feel that way. And from what I've heard, many, many Cambodians felt that way as well. When I first came to America, I mean, Cambodia was not studied, it, at least not in my school, and people didn't know what happened. I arrived in America in, um, in a small little state called Vermont, which was 
then in 1980, um, the whitest state in America. And I believe this is still statistically true. It is still the whitest state in America. And, and so there was people, there weren't people who understood where I came from. Um, when I told them I was from Cambodia, they asked me, do you speak Vietnamese? Oh, no, completely different country, <laughs> you know. And yet, um, even when I went to high school and when I went to college, if I learned anything about Cambodia, I learned it as a sideshow to the main stage that was going on in the Vietnam War in Vietnam. And if I wanted to study anything in Cambodia, I, I had to go out and find the books myself and read them myself and then find people to discuss because it wasn't being taught. So I didn't know about it. Um, and for Cambodians to see their story, to have and access and, and to be in a, a film that is made by Cambodians. So there is the cultural sensitivities and the lightings and the face and the language that I think that is um, not just satisfying, but very cathartic and healing. Another question uh, sent to us by text uh, to 330-541-5794, if you want to text your question, uh, about the what was the road to freedom like for you? You mentioned arriving in Vermont. How did you get there? Yeah, um, the the road to freedom was very long, and um, and filled with uncertainties. After the war ended in 1979, um, five of uh, four other siblings and myself survived the Khmer regime. And my oldest brother, who was 21, realized that we needed to leave Cambodia in order to see if we could build a new life somewhere. Um, and at that time, there were only two ways out of Cambodia. You either walk the land, and then you knew you had to cross this patch of land between um, Cambodia and Thailand, where we knew there were refugee camps, because you needed to get to a refugee camp. Um, and we knew that patch of borderland was was um, guarded by landmines and soldiers. And so it was a very dangerous route. Or you go the boat people's route. And to do that, you needed to raise four ounces or so of gold, which I think amounted today back then about $40. Um, and uh, to buy your seats on these tiny little boats that will take you um, from that would take you from Cambodia to Thailand, from Thailand to refugee camps. And we were only able to raise enough gold to take three people out. And so therefore, my oldest brother, his wife, myself, um, were chosen to leave and we left behind three other siblings. Um, and we made it to the refugee camp in Thailand, where after six months, we were um, told we had been sponsored by the Holy Family Church in Vermont to come to America. In total, the whole route took us um, over a year with no certainty at all that we would arrive to our destination safely, if at all. The, um, our boat was attacked by pirates in the sea in, in, in um, Asia. Um, and... Um, so we're so very grateful that we found a new home in America. We're so very grateful that we made friends with the people who sponsor us. Um, they were um, the, the parishioners of the Holy Family Church groups and, and they're still our friends. They're still part of our family and, um, and we still talk to them to this day and I will always be grateful for them. That was in 1980, 1980. Uh, 40 years ago. The, the, situation for refugees is is so different today it is so sad so sad because um now we have 80 80 uh, i'm sorry 68 million refugees in the world living in living in 
so many insecurities, food insecurity, health insecurity, you know, home insecurity, and they have no place to go. Um, so my heart breaks for them. Um, and um, I'm so grateful that Angelina is trying to do as much as she could. And, and I try to support her and, and, you know, we're hoping that we could do more together. But, um, and especially right now in this dangerous time, this health crisis of, of uh, coronavirus and COVID-19, I am watching the news with so much fear in my heart. And um, we in America, we in Ohio, we have the Cleveland Clinic, we have top line healthcare, we have, heroes and sheroes of first responders and central workers and um, people out there who are rising to the best of their man's humanity to man. I am worried that um, uh, what is going to happen when this explodes or, or, or gets to the refugee camps, um, to all these IDP internal um, displaced peoples um, places and where would go, they go? What would they do? And that is something that our scientists and our leaders will have to grapple with. One of our listeners writes, I read your book after a trip to Cambodia when I was in fifth grade. Your book left such a lasting impression on me. It helped me learn about the hardship that many Cambodians experienced and allowed me to reflect on the experiences of Cambodians that I met during my trip. What is your connection to Cambodia today? I am very connected to my uh, to Cambodia. My sister is still there, who is now a grandmother, um, and my brother is also a grandmother, uh, a grandfather. Um, I have been back to Cambodia on forty or so plus trips, and uh, have been able to. Um, do work in Cambodia. I work with a program called um, Veterans International that produces. Um, prosthetic devices, wheelchairs, orthotic uh, uh, devices for victims of landmines and victims of wars. I have uh, been and stayed and supported with various different groups, orphanages and um, programs in Cambodia. And I continue to go back and forth as, as much as I, I can. I'm under lockdown now in Ohio, like everybody else, but um, I continue to, uh, to keep a close eye on what's going on in Cambodia. Um, and uh, so, I'm hoping to get back there to, to get back to Cambodia soon. Are you worried about the impact of COVID on Cambodia? I am worried about the impact. Yes, yes. And I'm also worried about the impact of COVID in Africa and in Latin America and all these different places where, just, as we know, if, if testing is an issue in America, testing is an issue is in all these parts of the world. I and mean, the world is made of 195 countries. And we are, um, one of the most privileged and we are, are here we're together so many other countries india um and cambodia and vietnam and they don't have the capacity that we have here so um that is that is worrying we i do however believe that the human heart and the human race is infinitely resilient and that we will find ways to be there together and to to help each other and we have seen that i, I and again i have to say that at the start of this six or so weeks ago i was fairly traumatized and was filled with a lot more worries and i have been so heartened and amazed and grateful to see the number of people across our country and across the world who are rising to the challenge of being the best possible you know, humanity uh, uh, to themselves and to each other. And um, I'm so grateful. I mean, I can't, we're here, we're home. Um, and so I'm trying to do my part by staying at home and, and making sure that our essential workers are 
uh, get to stay healthy as well. Could you talk about participating in the book and film project Girl Rising about girls' education around the world? Yeah. Girl Rising was a film that I made with the director, um, Richard Robbins, and it is a documentary that follows the life of nine different girls in nine developing countries and their struggle to get an education. Um, having worked at a domestic violence shelter for three years after college and, and um, being more aware of women's and, and women's power and roles and voices in our, in our world, um, I, I remember very well a, a phrase or slogan that I saw somewhere um, that said, um, investing in a girl's education is the best way to alleviate and to eradicate poverty in the world because an educated girl, an educated girl will stop her poverty, her cycle of poverty within one generation. An educated girl who becomes an educated mother will educate her daughters and her son, not just her sons. An educated girl will actually go on to become an educated um, businesswoman who will then create businesses and support her family and her community. Um, so I am very much an advocate of educating girls um, and that was the what Girl Rising was all about. Um, and it was wonderful um, to spend time in Cambodia and to talk to different people about what it means to have an education because I feel, I am so blessed. I mean, I came to America as a nine-year-old girl who didn't speak a word of English. And as your listeners can tell, English being my fourth language, um, I can write better than I, I can speak, I think, I hope. Um, and there have been moments during this conversation when I realized that I had completely butchered the English grammar because... Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> and, and it's, push back a little bit on you there. You're oh, doing just oh, fine. Oh, thank you. And, and when I get excited and nervous, I speak fast and then I forget about the grammar rules. Um, but I can always fall back on the fact that I actually did learn it, that I was educated in school, that I had wonderful teachers who taught me so many things. And, and also not just reading, writing, math. An educated girl will also be able to be critical thinkers, to think outside of the box, to find solution that isn't in front of her, but is maybe still out there. Um, and so it is the best way to eradicate poverty in our society. In addition to uh, being an author and very skilled at the English language in uh, both verbal and written form, you mentioned earlier that you do um, are co-owner of several restaurants and bars. And one of our listeners asked how your restaurants are doing. It has been a trying time um, for us. We shutter our doors to Market Garden Brewery, Barcento, Beer Market, and Nano Brew. And all of our places are in Ohio City. And I love the area, loved our places because I, I have to say, I, I don't cook, but I love to eat. And I love to eat. And it was such a dream. I was living my grandest American dream of having my own place, which which means for me that I could go into any of the places, eat and drink whatever I want and our, our, our wonderful beers and, and just not pay for it. <laughs> There are perks to being restaurant owners, um, and uh, so it has been really, really trying. And, and I, my heart and my thoughts are with our employees that are now um, not working, and hopefully, 
And, and it's been very difficult. It's been very difficult, but we are, we kept our production facility, uh, Market Garden Brewery facility open. So we are still making beers and um, Andy Tavika, our master of brewers is still brewing and we are still bottling and kegging and selling and, and um, selling curbside of our, our beers. And then you can also, uh, we're in all the different restaurants. I mean, I'm sorry, we're not in restaurants anymore. Restaurants are all closed. Supermarkets and grocery stores. So um, I have been, um, I have been able to stay um, uh, my with my virtual happy hour with my friends and so drink my own beer. So that's been wonderful. It's almost summer shandy time. Yes. Um, Luang Ung, I have been asking this question of a lot of people lately, and I'd like to close with this. This great pause um, in all of our activity has given us a moment to think about what is me most meaningful what are the things we want to hang on to? What are the things we want to change? And I wonder, as you look to the future, to our economy, our society, our communities coming out of this, what are you hoping to either hold on to or do differently? I, I will do differently. I've always been a bit more conscious. And I think it's when, when because I've lost so much and have had the rug and, and my and swept from underneath me and my society and the country was completely collapsed in Cambodia. I've always been aware of staying in the present, of being in the moment, of really enjoying what we have right now. Um, part of my my heart and, and part of the traumas of war had been always fear being, being um, being afraid that if something happened to me, that the ones I leave behind would suffer. And I have been conscious to live a life where um, if something had to happen to me right now, Dan, you needn't be sorry or sad. If, and I don't want anything to happen to me, but that has been important to me, that if something happened to me, the people I love who I leave behind do not have to have guilt, do not have to have suffering, do not need to say I could have, should have, would have needed to do that with me because I've done there, I've done it, been there, tried all the foods I want and I'm okay. Um, so that has been important to me. And, and that means also being in the present and holding on to what we have right now. Being conscious that when we're outside and we feel the sun's ray, that we really feel it. Um, I have felt being in America, so I travel back and forth to, to, from Cambodia to America so much. In Cambodia, our culture is one that slows down a little bit because we don't have the technology. We don't have Netflix and bowling alleys and, and whizzing cars and trains so that when you walk, you really do feel the ball of your feet connect fully on the earth before you take off. And when you breathe, you really do have to breathe in air and you have to live with all of your five senses because if you don't pay attention to your sense of sound, you could, you know, you could step on a chicken crossing the road, <laughs> literally. And so I'm very conscious of staying in the presence, of staying in the moment. So when it is safe again, and when we next see each other, Dan, because the last time we saw each other was at the public library event and we hugged each other. When we next see each other and we can hug each other again, I'm just going to be a bit more appreciative that we can do that. Um, and uh, and I will be more appreciative of doing that with all of my loved ones. And um, and I do and hope and wish we all in Ohio and in America stay safe, take care, and remember you're stronger than you know. You're more courageous as we have already proven than 
we've ever imagined. And, um, and we are now all rising to the challenge of being the best of man's humanity to man. Luang Ung, we certainly appreciate you and your, your time and your words of encouragement. Um, thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Luang Ung is the author of First They Killed My Father, also of Lucky Child and Lulu in the Sky. First They Killed My Father is a Netflix film that you can watch right now if you want. Our forum today is presented virtually thanks to our partners at IdeaStream. Our forum today is the annual Robert D. Grease Forum on Inspiration, made possible by a generous endowment gift from Sally Grease and the Grease Generation 6 Fund. We're grateful to the Grease family for their longstanding support of City Club. And our forum today is also part of our local hero series, which is sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy and part of our Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Our community partner is the Refugee Response. We're grateful for their support and partnership as well. City Club virtual forums are also supported by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America and Thompson Hine. We're going to continue to present our virtual forums throughout this time, either on virtual platforms online or here from the IdeaStream studios. If you have ideas about topics, please get in touch with cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is now adjourned.